0: You're listening to Season 9 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today.
1: This is Episode 9.2 War Fantasy. 0083 Stardust Memory and the Kaku Senki genre. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a Gundam fan.
0: And I'm Nina, certainly not new to Gundam anymore, but somehow still keeping my perspective fresh. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by 698 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters. Charlotte C., Biximus Maximus, Executive Koala, Catherine M, and Miserix. You keep us Genki. Listener support is what keeps the lights on, the Gundam takes flowing, and the two of us toiling away. If you enjoy this podcast, consider supporting us today by becoming a subscriber on Patreon, making a one-time payment on Ko-fi, buying us research materials from our wishlist, or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Links to all of the different ways to support us are on our website. GundamPodcast.com/support. This week it is Tom's turn, and he will be discussing what he terms "war fantasy," the connection of the kaku senki genre to Eighty Three Stardust Memory.
1: Kakusenki is the name for a genre of Japanese fiction which exists somewhere on the periphery of what we would call sci fi, with different Kakusenki works fitting more or less within those confines. The term literally means fictitious war chronicle, but in practice it refers to alternate history versions of real wars. Alternate histories of the wars of the Sengoku period are popular, for example. By far, the most popular setting for Kaku Senki is the Pacific Theater of World War II. For reasons that may already be obvious just from that brief description, Kaku Senki has not enjoyed much popularity outside of Japan. The genre's most prominent exemplar, Konpeki no Kantai, received an anime adaptation back in the 90s, along with several spin-offs, but none of them have ever been officially translated. The anime Strike Witches, about cute girls who are also planes fighting an alien invasion during World War II, is probably the most internationally palatable example, and it's not exactly typical of the genre. The the kakusenki moe wing has done all right.
0: There's the tanks one. There's the recent one where dragons are disguised as jet planes, or Mm -hmm. maybe dragons are jet planes. There's
1: a really popular mobile game where all of the World War II battleships are cute girls. But anyway, we have seen Kaku Senki cross paths with Gundam before. The author, Baba Yoshihiro, credited as the songwriter behind Mori no Kuma-san, from which Zeta's Bolinok Saman got its name, was a prolific Kaku Senki author. And the two are going to cross paths again. Fukui Harutoshi, the writer behind Gundam Unicorn and Gundam Narrative, started his career writing award-winning Kaku Senki novels. Stardust Memory was made during the heyday of Kaku Senki and is imbued with many of that genre's characteristics. One of its writers, Takahashi Ryosuke, would start writing the screenplay for the Konpeki no Kantai anime adaptation less than a year later. It is my belief that W83 was deeply influenced by kaku-senki literature. It plays on the same themes, it emphasizes the same elements, and it satisfies the same appetites. But to really explain this, I have to start with where the kaku-senki genre came from. Released in 1974, space battleship Yamato opens with the Earth in severe peril. A hostile alien empire has bombarded the planet's surface with meteors, forcing the surviving human population into underground cities. We see a sequence of cities and buildings being annihilated, and a mushroom cloud rises into the sky. Radiation is on the verge of contaminating the underground cities. All seems lost until a message arrives from the friendly people of the distant Iskandar system. They have a technology that can save Earth, but they don't deliver. Someone from Earth is going to need to come and pick it up. It's kind of a space Craigslist situation. The only spaceship capable of making the 148,000 light-year journey is the ancient and massive ruin of the Imperial Japanese Navy's Yamato, sunk in battle just before the end of the Pacific War, left to rust on the seabed, and now retrofitted as a mighty space battleship. Under the command of a veteran captain with the best crew Earth can muster, and capable of faster-than-light travel thanks to a wave-motion engine, the old Hulk rises again, shiny and new, and ready to save us all. In Episode 2, a squadron of enemy fighters bombard the Yamato with missiles while it tries to launch from its hiding place. After it drives them off, the audience is treated to a flashback to April seventh, nineteen 1945, Operation Heaven One, the last sortie of the old battleship. On March 29 of that year, with American forces bombarding the defenses on Okinawa and Marines already landing on the outlying islands, the Yamata was ordered to make a suicide attack against the American fleet, to destroy as many troop transports as possible. If she survived, she and her small flotilla of escorts were to beach themselves and join the army on shore, where they would all fight to the last man. Escorted by a single light cruiser and eight destroyers, the Yamato was issued only enough fuel for a one-way trip. Morale among the sailors was abysmal. The captains of the escort fleet, first learning about the mission the day before they were to depart, protested that it was stupid, doomed to fail, and a waste of resources that would be better used raiding American supply lines. Among these was Hara Tameichi, now captain of the escort cruiser Yahagi. When the war started, he was the captain of one of Japan's 68 destroyers, and he would be the only one of those original destroyer captains to survive the war. He described this mission as being like throwing an egg at a rock. In the anime, though, a father and son in a small fishing boat see the Yamato and its task force on the way to their final battle. As they sail by, the father tells his son that the Yamato represents the strength of Japan. Yamato, after all, is another name for Japan itself. The sequence is drawn in a realist style deeply uncharacteristic of the rest of the show, and dubbed with a documentary-style voiceover, reporting to the audience that at 7.04 a.m. April 7th, the Yamato task force was engaged by a massive force of U.S. planes. These planes, TBF Avengers, drawn with meticulous attention to detail, come in low, skimming the water to release their torpedo payloads. The Yamato returns fire, blasting planes apart, but it is hit and hit again. The captain orders his crew to abandon ship, but at around 3pm the Yamato finally sinks, taking 3,000 crewmen with it. As it slips under the waves, we see an American pilot salute. This sequence is not strictly accurate. The battle was much shorter. American aircraft didn't make contact with the Yamato until about 20 minutes after noon, and the ship sank before 2.30. The attack force was smaller, and the Avenger torpedo bombers that feature so prominently in the show made up only one small part of it. The order to abandon ship was given after the Yamato had already begun to capsize, only 18 minutes before the ship sank completely. Almost no one was actually able to escape. And the ship was torn apart by a massive explosion after it capsized, although the full extent of the damage from that explosion wouldn't be confirmed until many years after Space Battleship Yamato aired. The flashback, drawn by Tomonaga Kazuhide and inspired by the film The Battle of Britain, was originally set to the tune of an old military marching anthem. Chief Director Matsumoto Leiji only learned about this after the dubbing was finished, and he objected strongly, thinking that it would send the wrong message. Using the Yamato itself was already a touchy subject. It was a political lightning rod, especially for the older generation. Everyone on the staff understood that they had to tread carefully to avoid looking like right-wing nationalist extremists. They had already taken pains within the animation itself, to avoid ever depicting the old imperial war flag, another sore point. Matsumoto said that he would quit the project unless the military march was removed, but they were only three or four days away from broadcast at this point. They had to scramble. In the end, they were able to make a new print and managed to get it to the networks on time, except for one station in Niigata Prefecture. The traffic on the roads was bad, and they couldn't get the physical print there in time. Their concern was understandable, and despite their caution, space battleship Yamato has never entirely escaped accusations that it is nationalist propaganda in disguise. The theming is not exactly subtle. The meteor bombardment evokes the conventional and atomic bombings of Japanese cities. The whole Earth is backed into a corner, just as Japan was in 1945. The rest of the world is helpless. From Beijing and Paris to Moscow, New York, and Rio de Janeiro, All we hear is despair. Only Japan can save the day, and to do it, they must resurrect a symbol of Japan's imperial glory. Yamato the Nation and Yamato the Battleship both rise to the challenge of one more desperate Hail Mary kind of mission. Under the surface, Yamato represents the idea of a rehabilitated Japanese nation, one rising from the ashes after the war to take its place among the wealthy, powerful, respected nations of the world. It offers a way of coming to terms with both the shame of defeat and the sense of collective guilt over the war's atrocities. Yamato reads as a fantasy of national revival, and at its core is the idea that something good, some salvation, may yet be found in the legacy of the war. Perhaps an old symbol of Japan's militarist past need not lie buried in its ignominious grave. Perhaps it can be repurposed And turned to benefit all mankind. Both Tomino Yoshiyuki and Yasuhiko Yoshikazu worked on Space Battleship Yamato, and there is good reason to believe that First Gundam was meant to be a response, commercially and artistically, to it. There is no glorification to be found in Gundam. Zeon is a fairly overt stand-in for Imperial Japan, with shades of the other Axis powers tossed in for flavor. From its small size and its militarist junta government to the surprise attack at the start of the war that closely resembles a large-scale version of the raid on Pearl Harbor, to the way its Zaku mobile suit resembles the Zero Fighter in most meaningful respects. There are the flags at Garma's funeral that look more than a bit like a mashup of the Prussian Iron Cross and the Imperial Japanese war flag. And then there's Space Fortress Solomon in the Solomon Sea Sector, which could maybe, possibly, have been inspired by the Solomon Sea and the heavily fortified Solomon Islands. The other colonies, conquered or destroyed by Xeon forces in the opening phases of the war, make a neat match for the other Asian and Pacific Island countries seized by the Empire, going all the way back to 1895. Tomino's novels go even further, The poison gas attacks on civilians in the opening phases of the war described therein were almost certainly inspired by stories he heard from his army engineer father about chemical and biological weapons used by imperial army units in China. These two perspectives, one glorifying the stoic heroism of soldiers laying down their lives in a doomed mission and the other criticizing the cruel and selfish arrogance that doomed those men in the first place are characteristic of the discourse about the pacific war that proliferated in the decades following japan's surrender that both are done through the medium of a fictional war setting one that mostly functions as a backdrop for heroic adventure stories is typical of the 1970s immediately after the war especially during the American occupation from 1945 to 1952, there was a mass outpouring of raw, cathartic, autobiographical works about the untold horrors of the war years. Books like Shinku Chitai, Zone of Emptiness, by Noma Hiroshi, which analogized the soldier's life to suffocation in an airless vacuum, or Imuparu, by Takagi Toshiru, which exposed the vaunted military as an incompetent, self-destructive, and disastrously mismanaged shambles. Many of these books were adapted for film, along with a bevy of other movies critical of the war and the old regime. I used the word untold earlier because the militarist regime before and during the war had effectively suppressed basically all critical voices. The only meaningful political disputes were between different factions within the ultranationalist coalition. This campaign of repression began at least as early as the 1910s, and by the mid-1930s, an estimated 95% of writers, even formerly avowed communists, publicly embraced the nationalist cause. Many did so after their colleague, novelist Kobayashi Takiji, was arrested and tortured to death by the police in 1933. That 95% figure is important because it helps to explain one of the major tensions in this post-war discourse. It was undeniable that the people of Japan, civilian and military alike, had suffered greatly due to the war. And yet, with very few exceptions, they had also participated in it, contributed to it, spoken publicly in its favor. If the people at home had been insulated from the reality of what was happening in the colonies or at the front, these were years of revelation. If they had justified these things as necessary sacrifices for the greater good of national victory, defeat shattered all of those excuses. The old social pillars of loyalty, obedience, self-sacrifice, and honor had proven not just hollow, but rotted to their core. And all that was left when they crumbled was a deep well of shame, rage, and guilt. How does a nation cope with that kind of collective guilt? Japan wrestled with that question openly for about a decade, but by the late 1950s an implicit consensus formed that it was no longer acceptable to criticize the war or those who had participated in it. There needed to be a clean break with the past. A new narrative was developing that resolved the tension between the victimization and the complicity of the survivors. The Japanese people, collectively, had been the victims of the militarists, a class of villains responsible for all the crimes of the war era. These wartime villains ceased to be real people with names, faces, addresses, and families, and they became boogeymen, lurking in the shadows of history. The militarists were capital B BAD, and they had done capital C CRIMES, but it would be distasteful to talk too much about who they were, what their crimes had been, or who had suffered the most because of them. At the same time, the memory of the war's events was gradually sanitized to emphasize the suffering of the Japanese people. Wartime deprivations, political repression, the American bombing campaign, the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the humiliating unconditional surrender, the American occupation, and the ensuing dependence on the United States for security. While these were emphasized, the empire's aggression, its racism, its treatment of prisoners of war, and the brutality of its colonial rule abroad did not fit into the new narrative. This framework continues to define depictions of and debates about the war today. Once you start looking for it, You will see it everywhere. There were many different forces pursuing this narrative. Nationalist political pressure groups emerging from their post-war hibernation and capitalizing on a general feeling that the families who had lost loved ones in the war had suffered enough certainly did play a role. But it was also politically expedient for the nation. It was expedient because by this point, many of the wartime leaders who had been purged from government positions during the early years of the US occupation were now returning to power. If you went looking for the people who had run the bad old Japan, you would find an uncomfortable number of them running the good new Japan. If you scrutinized things too closely, you might find yourself asking some difficult questions, about how a war criminal nicknamed the monster of the Showa era for his brutal and hedonistic colony administration had just gotten himself elected prime minister. Kishi Nobusuke, look him up. Or don't, you'll have a better day. At the same time, that is, the end of the 1950s and through the 60s, war reemerged as a theme for popular entertainment. War, stripped of overt political messaging and historical detail, came to function as a backdrop for exciting stories and blockbuster spectacles. Big budget war films proliferated, released yearly on August 15th, the day of the surrender. In this environment, if you were making mass media and you wanted to talk about the war, you had to come at it sideways, the way Yamato and Gundam do. But before either of them, there was Atragon. Made by Godzilla director Honda Ishiro and released in 1963, Atragon is a science fiction film about a super-advanced submarine built in secret after the end of the war by a rogue Imperial Navy officer, Captain Jinguji, who mutinied and went into hiding rather than surrender to the Allies. Jinguji and his submarine are called back into service when agents from the legendary undersea continent of Mu threaten to attack the surface world. In the course of the film, it is revealed that the Mu Empire once ruled the whole world, before their continent sank beneath the waves, and now they intend to return and subjugate all the peoples of the world once again. They intend to make us their colony, the characters say with evident horror. A tacit acknowledgement, perhaps, of the brutal oppressions of Japan's own colonial regime. Only Jinguji's super-advanced submarine, the Gotengo, stands a chance against the Mu forces. Unfortunately, the captain is a die-hard nationalist holdout, hiding out on a remote island. He built the Gotengo for the sake of the Japanese Empire, and he doesn't recognize this new post-war world as one worth saving. Even his daughter and his old commanding officer fail to bring him around. When the other characters tell him that the world has changed, he spits back, Then I'll change it again! Ultimately, he relents. And the Gotengo, capable of flying through the sky as easily as it sails underwater, swiftly defeats the technologically advanced but socially stagnated Mu forces. As their stricken undersea realm dies in a series of massive explosions, we see the young Mu empress dive into the waves and begin swimming back toward her kingdom, doomed to die there. Jinguji tells the others to let her go. He, more than anyone, understands how she feels. It is a powerful message about the need to move on, the necessity of embracing a changing world. The people of Mu are a cautionary parable for those who stay trapped forever within dead dreams of imperial glory. They could have abandoned their continent before it sunk. They could have come to the surface peacefully at any time after that. They could have negotiated, but they never could give up on their dream of dominating all the other peoples of the world. Like Captain Jinguji, They hid and waited and built their deadly submarines because they believed that Mu would rise again, and it destroyed them. Honda has been explicit about his intent in creating the film. Quote, There were some Japanese people who felt like Jinguji. Even when confronted with their wrongdoing, they still cannot shake loose their pride. I understand him very well because I was also in the war. But instead of thinking, what about Japan, What I got from my war experience was, what about humanity? Even though Atragon is most invested in criticizing the fanatic nationalism of Captain Jinguji, it also presages the revival fantasies of Yamato. Here is another product of Japanese militarism emerging from hiding in an hour of desperation to save the world. Many of the people who made Atragon had experienced the war personally. Honda himself was in the infantry in China. The film's writer, Sekizawa Shinichi, was called up in 1941 and fought through the end of the war, somewhere in Southeast Asia. Tazaki Jun, who played Captain Jinguji, was drafted in 1944 and fought until the surrender. Uehara Ken, who played Jinguji's old commanding officer, was from an old samurai family that had turned to military service. His father had been an army colonel, but he was discharged for health reasons. Instead, he made propaganda films. When Uehara's character, an admiral turned shipping magnate, expresses his regrets about the war and asks not to be reminded of his rank, you can perhaps see echoes of the actor's own personal feelings. Inevitably, though, as time went on, the war generation passed the baton on to the next. The people who made Yamato and Gundam, the great science fiction anime of the 1970s, had mostly been young children during the war, or were born directly afterwards during the occupation their earliest memories would have been of a shattered nation but every year of their lives after that had seen the country growing wealthier and stronger as the so-called japanese economic miracle transformed the broken country into one of the richest in the world japan really was rising out of the ashes of war like a phoenix or a space battleship. The 1970s also saw the early stirrings of the kaku sanki genre. In 1971, the detective fiction writer Takagi Akimitsu published The Combined Fleet Finally Wins, in which a time-traveling military history otaku gives the Imperial Navy advice on how to avoid its worst missteps during crucial battles like Midway. Then, in between 1974's Yamato and 1979's Gundam, Toyoda Aritsune a sci-fi author from the same generation as Tomino and Matsumoto Leiji, who had actually worked on the original draft of the space battleship Yamato setting, published his novel, Time Slip Great War, in which present-day 1970s Japan is rocked by an earthquake that somehow transports the whole archipelago back in time to fight the Pacific War again, but now with all of their cool 1970s technology. These two early examples of the Kakusenki genre ask two questions. First, what if we could fight the war again, but do it right? And second, what if we could fight the war again, but do it with sick future technology? These two questions would come to define the genre in the decades to come. In their archetypical form, Kakusenki works are characterized by a bone deep regret over the outcome of the Pacific War. It's telling that the ad copy for the combined fleet finally wins describes it as "mo hitotsu no kui naki tatakai," one more battle without regret. Some express that by reconfiguring the combatants in order to place Japan on the Allied side. Maybe in this version of history, the Soviet Union conquers Nazi Germany, and Japan must ally with the U.S. and Britain in order to defeat the Reds. Maybe Japan and Britain maintained their World War I-era alliance, and the fight is against the US, France, and Italy. Maybe Lenin and Stalin fled Russia and led a communist revolution in the US instead, forcing all the other countries of the world to unite against them. But other works deal with that regret by playing the circumstances of the war fairly true to life, while giving Japan some edge some means to utterly stomp her historical enemies. These contrivances range in plausibility from a secret additional fleet that appears at a crucial moment to turn the tide of the war, to time travelers, to super tech, like a version of the battleship Yamato built with gigantic tank treads on it so that it can drive on land and invade the US mainland. Kakusenki works are also characterized by an obsessive focus on detailed depictions of military technology and its capabilities, both the real stuff and the super advanced alt-history technology that gets invented for the stories. You can pretty reliably recognize a Kaku Senki book just by its cover art. It's almost always a lovingly detailed close-up painting of a cool fake ship or plane or submarine in the foreground. For whatever reason, tanks are relatively rare, although shout out to the three-part Aoi no Taihei Yo Senso series for hitting the trifecta of cool battleship on part one, cool fortress-sized tank on gigantic treads for part two, and then cool bomber with London visibly burning in the background for part three. The genre kept bubbling under the surface throughout the 1980s, proving popular not just in novels, but also as a natural fit for simulation board games. Perhaps the most prominent among these was Red Sun Black Cross in 1985, which presented a world where small deviations in Japan's history touched off a chain of events that led to a third world war between Germany and Japan. Just to show how intertwined all of this was, Sato Daisuke, the main designer for Red Sun Black Cross, would later write a series of Kaku Senki novels called Seito, or Expedition, as an homage to space battleship Yamato. In the Seito version of history, the Imperial Navy succeeded in holding off the American fleet, but Japan was invaded from the north by the Soviet army instead, leading to a divided country, like in Korea or Vietnam. In this version, the super-battleship Yamato survives the war and ends up being retrofitted with advanced modern technology to become the centerpiece of southern Japan's Coast Guard. The Kaku Senki boom then started properly in the early 90s, when Aramaki Yoshio, a veteran sci-fi author who had been writing Kaku Senki stories since at least 1986, published the first of what would eventually become his 20-volume magnum opus, Konpeki no Kantai. The title roughly translates to Fleet of the Deep Blue, or Azure Fleet. In it, the famous Admiral Yamamoto Isoroku, commander-in-chief of the Combined Fleet until his death in April 1943, returns to life as himself, but 38 years prior, with full knowledge of all that had happened, slash, was going to happen. It is soon revealed that he is not the only reincarnated person. The enormous ensemble cast includes reincarnations of most of the key figures of the era, including Leon Trotsky, Joseph Stalin, Mahatma Gandhi, Winston Churchill, Neville Chamberlain, Franklin Roosevelt, Douglas MacArthur, Dwight Eisenhower, as well as some more unusual choices like Ronald Reagan, now going by Donald Duck Reagan and commanding the American North Pacific Fleet. In this version, Einstein defects to Japan and helps them build a flying battleship. There are a few other minor changes to the timeline, of course. Hitler is a reincarnated psychic vampire, for instance.
0: You know, minor changes. Little things.
1: Armed with knowledge of the future and advanced super technology, the reborn admiral and his reborn confederates set out to fight the war once again, but to do it properly this time, ensuring that the Japanese Empire emerges victorious to reshape the world in its image, fulfilling Captain Jinguji's threat in Atragon, to change the world again. Let me just note in passing here that one of the complaints which is frequently leveled at Stardust Memory is that the technology depicted is simply too advanced to be plausible in 0083. That it's too far beyond what we saw in first Gundam, and that it's maybe even beyond what we see at the start of Zeta. But lovingly detailed depictions of totally unrealistic technology are part of the core DNA of Kakusenki they are a huge part of the appeal. Konpeki no Kantai was immensely popular, spawning that OVA adaptation I mentioned before, which ran for a whopping 32, 40 minute long episodes, released over the course of a decade. It was originally directed by Kanda Takayuki until his death in 1996, and that's a name you might recognize because he was the director of SD Gundam Musha Knight Command Emergency Scramble and the first half of 8th MS Team, a project he must have been working on alongside Konpeki no Kantai. Sekita Osamu, a regular episode director on every TV Gundam anime from 1979 to 1993, plus Gundam Seed, was also a regular episode director for Konpeki no Kantai. In Stardust Memory, the Zeon characters are universally consumed by the same kind of regret over their defeat in the prior war that animates the whole Kakusenki genre. Gato's regret that he did not die honorably in battle alongside his comrades, Delaz's shame that he was defeated and allowed his beloved Supreme Commander Giranzabi to be killed, Kelly Leisner's mingled fury and anguish over the loss of his place in the world, The director, Imanishi, himself has said that Zion, and especially Gato, are meant to represent Japan and its people in the aftermath of the war. Delaz himself is basically a Captain Jinguji figure, hiding out in the wilderness and waiting for his chance to revive the old empire. Instead of a super submarine, he has Gato, the stolen Unit 2, and its nuclear payload. Collectively, these characters' overriding desire is to fight the old battle anew. To cleanse themselves of shame and go into the next life without regrets. With no access to time-slip technology, that is the best they can do. Their actions in the show also hit on a couple of the classic revenge fantasies. The Attack on the Naval Review gives Space Japan the opportunity to use a nuclear bomb against these space allies. By dropping the colony specifically on the breadbasket of North America, the Dalaz fleet reverses the devastation Japan suffered during the American bombings. The colony drop also resembles and in some sense fulfills Japan's failed wartime effort to ignite forest fires in the U.S. via incendiary balloons. The Zeon characters are also driven by disdain for the world that has been made during their self-imposed absence. They despise the quiescent Republic of Zeon, and Gato sees everything wrong with the New World, embodied in this young ensign Uraki. Even though Xeon is constructed as Imperial Japan, and the Federation is a clear composite of the Allies, Ko is the most overtly Japanese protagonist we have had to date. His appearance was based on a member of the show's staff. Uraki is an actual, albeit somewhat rare, Japanese name, and Ko is a perfectly normal one. The rivalry between Gato and Ko, which ultimately transcends the Xeon Federation battle and constitutes the real core conflict in the show, is actually a battle between two visions of Japan, the old Imperial Japan and the modern. It's like an Atragon. The first time one of the older characters says the word patriotism, the young woman he's addressing doesn't even recognize the word. Another describes the concept as being like rusty armor. Gato embodies all the virtues of the old empire. He is rigidly stoic, martial, independent, self-denying, and capital S strong. Ko is lax, diffident, aimless. Gato believes that peace, prosperity, and subordination to the international order of the federation has made Ko, capital W, weak. He embodies everything that Gato hates and fears about the modern world. No wonder they have to fight. The first volume of Konpeki no Kantai came out in 1990, during the planning phase for Stardust Memory. The genre was booming by the time Stardust Memory wrapped up at the end of 1992. They were tapping into the same deep cultural currents, the same anxieties about Japan's past, and its future. But Shima complicates the narrative, as she has done since she first swaggered into the story. Shima does not regret losing the war. Shima regrets the things that she did for Zeon. Shima wants to be included in the New World Order. She wants peace and prosperity. She wants a clean break from the past. But her own guilty conscience, her nightmares, won't let her escape. In Mayfly of Space, Stardust Memory does what most Kaku Senki avoids. It reminds the audience of something that no flying battleship or time travel contrivance can ever change. That monuments to Imperial glory always rest uneasily because they are built on the foundation of broken human beings.
0: next time on episode 9.3, how a multi-tool and pocket knife became an icon, war in the pocket, and the history of the Swiss Army knife. I make one more return journey to war in the pocket to speculate about why a Swiss Army knife features so prominently in the eye catch, and what it might symbolize. In the meantime, stay genki, folks.
1: Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website gundampodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at gundampodcast, or by email to hosts at gundampodcast.com. And thank you for listening. This week's rigorously researched Gundam fact comes from Luna, who notes that Garmazabi has five official fursonas. Two different types of cat, one Chihuahua, one Shiba Inu, And one bird chick. I've been saving my voice for days. Hopefully it'll make it through this.
0: Oh, that's all you're going to say. Hang on, just a second. Sorry.
1: (laughs) And that's all I got this week. I did not prepare an intro for my own research piece.
0: Uh, Well, I can just rip off of the title. Yeah. Except apparently cute girls are also some kind of battle machinery is.
1: Yeah, that that one is done pretty well. Who forced them to go to war, you ask? Hey, come on now, you know it's inappropriate to ask those kinds of questions. Imanishi Takashi, with his strong interests in both science fiction and real world military technology, was its precise target audience.